the dictionary defines irony as a situation or a statement where the appearance of things differs from the reality. Now, I've mentioned this before, but there's so many ironies in this passage that I thought it might be nice to just remind you of what irony is. So, irony, in other words, is that things are different to the way that they appear to be. Uh, Let me give you a couple of examples of irony. This is one that I've given you before. Uh, This is Barry Manilow. Probably one of the greatest hits that Barry Manilow had was a song called I Write the Songs. But Barry Manilow didn't actually write that song. Somebody else wrote the song. So when he sang I Write the Songs, well, he didn't really write that song. So that's irony. The appearance of things is different to the reality. Uh, Here's a couple of little visual ironies that might help you get on board with what an irony is. That's that's a personal favourite of mine at the moment. So this one, if you can't read that, that says Rust-Oleum stops rust. If you can't read that through the rust that's on there. And and my other personal favourite, and I've shown this one before, is this one. Visual ironies. The appearance of things is different from the reality. Now, the passage of Acts that we're looking at today, I think has more irony per square inch than any other passage in the whole Bible. Now, one of the great ironies that we've already seen is that following the persecution of Christians, following the death of Stephen, they wanted, the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem wanted to persecute the Christians in order to wipe out Christianity, but the reality was completely different. The persecution happened But it only served to fan the flames of the church. The church grew even more dramatically as a result of the persecution. So there's an irony right there. They wanted to crush Christianity, but their efforts only made Christianity grow even more quickly as the good news about Jesus spread. Now today we're looking at the conversion of a man by the name of Saul, the man whose name will become Paul later on. Luke sees this as being such a significant event that he actually records it three times in the book of Acts. First, this account, which is the third person account of what's happening to Paul, and then Paul retells of his conversion two more times in the book of Acts. This is a big event, not just for Saul, but it's a big event for the worldwide church. At the beginning of Acts chapter 9, we're introduced to Saul again. We've heard briefly about him before. He was there at the stoning of Stephen, giving his approval to what was happening and looking after the clothes of those who'd taken off their cloaks to go and stone Stephen. But at the beginning of chapter 9, we're given another introduction to Saul. I think if you had to pick two words to describe this man, my two words would be sincere and committed. I mean, there's no question about that at all. Here is a man who is passionately driven in what it is that he's doing. He's passionately devoted, he believes, to God in what he's doing. Saul persecuting Christians is what he believes God would want him to do. These people are wrong. They're enemies of God as far as Saul's concerned. They're blasphemers. Persecution would be what God would want from him, and he is sincerely doing it. Look at what it says, the beginning of Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest 
and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. See, do you see what's happened here? The persecution has taken place. Christians have now spread even as far as Damascus and Saul wants to go and round them up and bring them back to Jerusalem. Their persecution efforts have actually spread the gospel to places they never dreamed that it would go and now they want to try and round them up and bring them back to prison. And let's be clear about this. This trip to Damascus, that's not just down the road. This is a map that might give you a bit of... This is actually from Google Maps, um, so it's a modern-day map of that part of the world, but that's where Jerusalem is here, and this is Damascus. So the road up from Jerusalem to to Damascus is around about 250 kilometres, possibly on foot, possibly riding a horse. But that's how committed this man is. He is sincere and committed in what he's doing. Totally wrong in what he's doing, But you can't question the sincerity or the commitment of him, can you? It's funny, I'd like a dollar for every time someone said to me, it doesn't really matter what you believe, just so long as you're sincere. I mean, I would have thought this man is living proof that that's not true. It does matter what you believe. You can be sincerely wrong, as Paul clearly was. He embarks on his 250-kilometre trip to Damascus, and and I, I don't know whether this is just me or whether this is actually there in the passage but I can't help but think that Jesus has a really good sense of humor in the way that he handles all of this 250 kilometer trip Saul is just about to dramatically arrive in Damascus and it's there that he's knocked to the ground it's there that the light flashes and Paul is struck I mean Jesus could have done that anywhere on that 250 kilometer trip He could have done it just outside of Jerusalem. He could have even done it inside Jerusalem before he'd left. But no, he chooses to let Saul travel 249 kilometres and then strikes him down. Well, Saul hears the voice and the voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, I think Saul is genuinely stumped by who this is. He has no idea who it could be talking to him. And that's obvious by the question. He says, who are you, Lord? Now, Lord there just means sir. He doesn't, he's not acknowledging that this is God in any way. That's just a general polite term. He had no idea who it was who had knocked me to the ground. And then he hears these words in verse 5. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, I've got no doubt that those were the words that completely knocked him for six. He is stunned by this. His whole world is now turned around. By persecuting Christians, Saul was persecuting Jesus himself. There is such a connection between Jesus and his church. Jesus tells him to get up. And to go into Damascus and Saul is led by the hand, like a child, still blind, into Damascus. So Saul has now realised that these Christians who claim that Jesus is the Messiah, they're right. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Saviour. Jesus is the Son of God. I heard of uh, people when I was at school 
who would be sent to the principal's office. And uh, I understand from these people that um, the worst part about going to the principal's office wasn't that you had to see the principal, but it was the waiting outside the door. They said that that was the most painful part of the whole experience. Sitting there, not knowing what was going to happen. Uh, you know, it might have only been three or four minutes, ten minutes that you had to wait, but it felt like ten hours that you're sitting there waiting for the principal to open the door and say, Mr. Tattis, or whoever it is, um, <laughs> come on in. I imagine those three days for Paul in, or Saul in Damascus would have been three of the longest days of his life as well. As he sat there in this room, completely in the dark because he's blind, waiting waiting to see what is going to happen. So meanwhile, in another part of Damascus, Jesus speaks to a man by the name of Ananias. And and I love the way that this story unfolds as well. Again, there's just so much humour in here, isn't there? Have a look, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come to his place, lay his hands on him to restore his sight. Um, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all those who call on your name. Do you you hear what Ananias is saying here? I've heard some bad reports. Maybe, Lord, you've heard these reports as well? I'm I'm not sure. Would that be possibly right? Are you sure you want me to do this? Wouldn't we all be a little bit better off if he just remained blind? To Ananias, this would have seemed like a suicide mission. Handing yourself over to the man who has the paperwork to arrest you. Why would you go and knock on his door? But there's a funny little wordplay that happens in these verses. Ananias says, he's caused suffering for all those who call on your name. And look at what Jesus says. This man will carry my name and I'll show him how much he will have to suffer for my name. Well, Ananias does as he's told. And I love the words that he uses when he gets in there. He stands in front of Saul and says, Brother Saul. See, Ananias gets it. He knows what's going on. Here's a man who has become a follower of Jesus. This man is now his brother in Christ. When a person becomes a Christian today, it's normally a matter of them turning away from ignorance about God to knowledge about God. It's turning away from ignoring and rejecting God to now placing your trust in God. It's a slightly different thing that happens here for Saul, though, isn't it? I mean, here is a man who already believed in the God who created the heavens and the earth, already believed in the God who'd made all of these extraordinary promises to Abraham, believed in the God who had promised that he would send a saviour, believed in the God who'd revealed himself through his word. So I think there's a sense in which Saul understood immediately who Jesus was. All of his knowledge of the Old Testament all of a sudden fell into place. He got it. He realised who Jesus was. 
He had this information in his head. He already knew the scriptures backwards. Oh, sure, there were things that he had misunderstood and things that he hadn't seen clearly. That's why he's persecuting Christians. But now, now he gets it. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the one who came to bring salvation to the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. And within a matter of days of becoming a Christian, Saul's in the synagogue preaching this good news about Jesus. He didn't have to go off to a preaching class. He didn't have to go and do a degree in theology before he was capable of doing this. And look at what it says, verse number 22. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus. And note this, by proving that Jesus is the Christ. He's opening the scriptures to them, opening up their own Bible and proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. There was a movie out a couple of years ago. I'm not sure whether you saw it. It wasn't a particularly good movie. It's called The Insider. And Russell Crowe played a a former employee of the tobacco companies. Uh, And he was spilling the beans on what really happened with the tobacco industry. He was a dangerous man to the tobacco industry because he knew all about the tobacco industry. They have, they have to do everything within their power to try and silence this man because he knows about their industry in a way that nobody else does. And that seems to be the way the Jewish religious leaders see Saul. See, he's the insider. He's the guy who actually knew all about Judaism And now he is proving that Jesus is the Christ. He has become a dangerous man as far as they're concerned. And they decide that they need to get rid of him. So in Damascus, they have a plot to try and kill him. They're watching the gate. They want to make sure that this guy does not leave Damascus alive. Saul is forced to flee. They lower him down over the wall at night to get him out of town. The religious leaders want him dead. Saul heads to Jerusalem and again encounters the same thing there. They see him as a dangerous man. They want him out of the way. So ultimately, he's forced to go back to his hometown, back to Tarsus, where he grew up. Now, I said that this passage is full of, is chock-a-block full of ironies. Now, let me just run you through a couple of them. Uh, the first one is that the persecutor is humbled. The man who'd gone to Jerusalem with the paperwork to arrest all of these Christians, how does he arrive? Sorry, in, goes to Damascus. How does he arrive in Damascus? Well, he's led in by the hand, like a child. Uh, that's one of the ironies. Uh, another of the ironies is that the persecutor becomes the persuader. The man who was so vehemently opposed to Christianity is now standing up in the synagogue and proving that Jesus is the Christ. Another one of the ironies is that the persecutor becomes the persecuted. The one who was there to persecute the Christians, well now there are people who want him dead. They're going to try and get him out of the way. Another one of the beautiful ironies in this passage is that the believers become the protectors of Saul. 
They're the ones who were saving his life. He'd come there to kill them, or at the very least to get them thrown into prison, and now Saul is rescuing them. Uh, Sorry, they are rescuing Saul and enabling him to get out of Damascus and out of Jerusalem alive. The enemies are the rescuers. So what's the lesson in all of this for us? As I said, Saul's conversion is, is given to us three times in the book of Acts. So it's obviously a fairly significant story. Let me give you two things that I think we need to make sure we learn from this. First thing is this. Never underestimate God's grace. I mean, that's got to be one of the things that really impresses us from this passage. Here is a man who is persecuting Christians, who is an enemy of Jesus. And what does he deserve from God? Well, he deserves to be punished by God. But instead... God demonstrates this extraordinary grace to Saul. He saves him. He shows him the truth about Jesus. He forgives him and gives him eternal life. It's remarkable that God would be so gracious to him. Now, if you're a Christian sitting here today, then I want to say that your story might not be quite as dramatic as Saul's story, But God's been nonetheless gracious to you and me. See, what do you and I deserve from God? Well, we deserve to be punished by God. And if you don't think so, please stay behind afterwards because we really do need to have a talk. I mean, the Bible says clearly that that's what we, every single one of us deserves, is to be punished by God. But we're testimony of God's grace that God would offer this forgiveness and this eternal life to us free through his son Jesus. If you think God owed you something, then you're not reading your Bible very carefully. God owes you nothing. But God is gracious. He's willing to offer you forgiveness. He's willing to welcome you into his family. It's a remarkable thing, a remarkable example of God's grace that we see here in the life of Saul. And we need to never forget that we can testify to God's grace in our lives as well. But the other thing that I think stands out in this passage, and it stands out quite dramatically for Saul, is this. The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. I mean, look at what happens to Saul. He'd gone to Damascus to arrest Christians, but he leaves as a Christian. He'd gone to Damascus to silence those who preach about Jesus, and he ends up standing in the synagogue and preaching about Jesus. He's gone to Damascus to persecute the Christians, and he ends up being persecuted himself. So the gospel changes everything. It changes the way that you see life, It changes the way that you see others. It changes the way that you live. It changes your goals. It changes your purpose. I mean, it's so clear for Saul, and it needs to change us as well. It's one of the things that we we see all the way through the book of Acts. This message about Jesus changes lives. Changes the lives of crippled people and sorcerers and Ethiopian eunuchs. 
and religious zealots like Saul. And it changes them dramatically. Now, if you're sitting here today as someone who has not yet placed your trust in Jesus, then you need to, you need to come before him in prayer. Uh, you need to thank him for the forgiveness that he offers and you need to accept that forgiveness for yourself. But if you're sitting here today as someone who does trust in Jesus, then you need to make sure that you let the gospel keep changing everything, shaping and influencing your life. So it doesn't change your life a bit, it changes your life completely. And Saul is the poster boy for this, isn't he? I mean, how dramatically could a life be turned around? Well, that's that's the effect that the gospel ought to have on our lives as well. And we need to make sure that the gospel keeps changing us, that it's still at work to change our lives. Change the way that you view your life, your goals and your purpose, because now you know Jesus is Lord. Change the way that you see others, the way that you relate to others, your hopes for others. Because you have experienced God's grace. The gospel changes everything. 